Well, good morning. If you have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Uh, today we are going to be uh, taking a turn to the home stretch of Romans and are going to be doing a little bit of a flyover of Romans chapter 9 through 11. So uh, a lot of ground to cover this morning. But as we do, um, our hope is to, to seek out and understand uh, Paul's heart and message for the church in Rome and also what that means for you and I today, wherever we may find ourselves. Now, Romans 9 through 11 is a a challenging passage to uh, wrestle through. I remember back in grad school, I had a professor taught a class on Romans, and we had about 40 hours of classroom instruction to cover 16 chapters in Romans. And out of those 40 hours of instruction, we spent about 30 minutes on these three chapters. And he said it was simply because he, he still struggled to know what to do with this passage. And uh, after the last couple of weeks of reading through this, uh, I definitely feel with him on that. Um, But I find comfort in the way that Paul lands the plane here in Romans 11. So I just want to start by looking at where Paul lands, so that we maybe have a a perspective of of where we're headed here. In Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, Paul says this. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and the paths, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been, been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So right here, I think what we see and need to understand up front is the truth that we're going to look at today should draw us into a deep sense of worship as we see, like Paul pointed to there, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So our reading should lead us to a deep sense of worship, and it should be worship that changes how we live each and every day. And we see that in chapter 12, verse 1, which is a passage that Phil will preach on more next week. But I just want us to see this, how Paul comes out of this passage. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So whatever it is that we make of Romans chapters 9 through 11, it should draw us into deeper worship of God, and it should be a worship that changes how we live each and every day. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, well, Andrew, isn't that what we should do each and every week? Be drawn to deeper worship of God and have that worship impact our lives each and every day? And the answer is yes. That is what we seek to do each and every week. That's what we hope to see happen each and every week as we open God's word. But the reality for each and every one of us in this room is that um, either right now or at some point in our life or some point in our future, we're going to have moments where we're tempted to believe that God's not worthy of our worship because of our circumstances or our perspective about what's going on in our life. 
There are going to be times, there are going to be moments where we question whether or not in light of our circumstances, in light of what's happening in our life, if God is truly worthy of our worship. And we all have to wrestle through in moments like these, the question of whether or not we believe that God's plan and God's character is good. And that's what Paul is wrestling with in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. Can we trust God's promises. I think all of us would agree that promises are a pretty big deal. And if maybe you hear that and you're like, I don't know about that, just put yourself back in your nine-year-old self's body. (laughs) If you think back to being a nine-year-old, you'll remember that maybe some kept promises or some broken promises have maybe impacted you to this day. And with young kids, it's kind of funny because the promises can be any number of things. It can be like as simple as, hey, today after school, we'll get to go to the park or next summer, we'll go on vacation to Disney or it can be any number of things. And kids are going to hold you to that and call you out on it, right? If you don't sort of come through on your word. But the importance of promises don't stop as we grow older. Promises still matter whenever we become adults. Promises still matter, whether that's the the promise of a pay increase from your employer, or it's a a spouse pledging faithfulness to another spouse, or if it's any number of other things, promises matter to us. If it's a, a friend who says, hey, you can share anything and I will keep it in confidence. When people break their word, when people break their promises, it can break relationships. It can break trust. And the same is true in our relationship with God as well. Each and every one of us, again, either has had, will have, or are having right now a time where we're tempted to ask the question, can I trust God and his promises? Can I trust God and his word? Or is God just going to leave me hanging out to dry? Because my circumstances maybe right now seem to say that God has abandoned me. So we have to ask the question, can we trust God's word? Can we trust his character? Can we trust his plan? Maybe these questions come about in our life whenever we lose a loved one. Maybe it's whenever there's a a sudden job loss that's unexpected. Maybe it's whenever uh, there's uh, someone you love who makes the decision to turn away from Jesus, which is what Paul was wrestling through right here in this passage. Or, Or maybe it's when there's a cancer diagnosis. I don't know when it is, but this temptation comes. And what happens is we start to hear promises like Andy shared last week. We see a promise of hope, a promise of help, a promise of purpose, a promise of security. We have moments in our life where where because of these things happening, we hear the way that Romans chapter 8 ends in verses 38 and 39 where Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can hear promises like this and we can think, how can this be true if my circumstances seem to be telling a different story? Again, can we trust God's word and God's promises? I think we can imagine Paul, after writing the end of chapter 8, dictating this to the person writing it down, I think we can just imagine Paul taking a deep breath 
as he goes from the, the mountaintop of the end of chapter A into this deep depth uh, of lament as he thinks about the Jews, his, his family that has rejected Jesus. He's going from this mountaintop down into the depths in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, because Israel has rejected God. And Paul loves his Jewish family, and he deeply desires them to embrace Jesus. In fact, he says that that he would wish that he could be cursed, that he could be cut off from God if it meant that his Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith in Jesus. He sees this is a really big deal because he looks at the story of Israel and he sees that the people of Israel experience this blessing of living in a special relationship with God. They experience the blessing of receiving God's instruction. They receive the blessing of, of receiving promises from God. Not only that, but they could like tie their family tree back to people like Abraham, back to people like David. There were all these big things that Paul points to there in verses four and five to show the reason why he grieves so much. It's because of all that they were entrusted with and now to see them reject Jesus. The Jesus who actually ties his family tree back to these same people as well. If this is kind of brings him to the moment, if all of this is true, his readers are sort of wondering if so many people from Israel have rejected Jesus in his plan, then how can God's promises be trusted? Has God failed to keep his word? What do we make of this? Again, maybe you're out there today and and you hear this and you're wondering this question, how can I trust God? This is the question Paul is wrestling through. But before we jump in like deep into 9 through 11, I think it's important for us to have a little conversation here. Hi, I'm Andrew. We're going to have a little talk here. Val, it's so good to have you back. Hi, sorry. Um, uh, But as we come to this moment here in Romans 9, like I think it's important for us to realize that there are promises that, that God makes that sometimes we receive, but what we do is we like hold those at a distance. Or sometimes we can have these truths and we let them sit in our head all day long, but we never let them sink into our hearts. You guys know what I'm talking about? And and as we get ready to jump into here, the the thing is, is that a lot of what Paul writes in here, a lot that we're going to talk about, about God being faithful, is something that's probably really familiar to you. This is stuff that maybe isn't familiar, but it's really challenging to you. And the thing that we need to recognize is that that these aren't truths we can let sit in our head, that we can hold at a distance. These are truths that we need to have sink deep into our hearts. So my encouragement to each and every one of us here is that as we wrestle through this passage, is to let the Holy Spirit take these truths, take them from your head to your heart. Because without these truths in your heart, the reality is that you and I are not going to be able to stand Whenever trial comes, we're not going to be able to stand on God's promises because we're going to be tempted to to think that that this was just a good idea and not anything real. Now, Paul wrestles with this question of God's trustworthiness starting there in verse 6. In fact, he comes right out and takes it head on. He says, it is not as though God's word has failed. For not all, uh, I just lost my place there. Okay, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's child or children. On the contrary, 
It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Paul takes up this um, question of whether or not God's word can be trusted. And what he does to kind of show it is he looks back at the story of the Old Testament and God's interaction with his people. In verse seven there, you see Paul actually quote a verse from the Old Testament. And what's kind of incredible, if you look through Romans chapter nine, all the way through 11, is that you'll find by my count, 28 different Old Testament quotations. It's incredible. Paul wrote 13 letters. And out of those 13 letters, one third of his Old Testament quotations are found right here in these three chapters alone. So what Paul is doing here is he's showing that this idea of God's faithfulness to his promise, the way that God's coming through on his promise is what God has always promised to do. He points back to the time when God called Abraham and he gave Abraham a promise. He promised that he was going to give him a family and that this family was going to be a blessing to all nations. But what happened was Abraham tried to take things into his own hands. Abraham tried to have a child outside of God's design. And and when this happened, it seemed like it may mess things up. But Paul shows that that God's plan and purpose all along was only for this, this promise, this blessing to be experienced through the child Isaac and through any offspring that came through him. This is a child that God gave to Abraham and to Sarah when Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100. It was a miracle. It was a miraculous gift from God. You see, what Paul's doing right here is showing that that, um, being part of God's family is not simply a matter of having DNA that ties back to Abraham. It wasn't all of Abraham's children who who became part of the people of God, the promised people of God, but, but it was God's surprising choice to do what seemed impossible and foolish to bring about his plan to bless all nations. It was actually through this miraculous gift of a child to this older couple. This story is told in verses six through 13 as Paul stresses that God's sovereign election has always been surprising. He chose Isaac, the son of an older couple. He goes on to talk about how he chose Jacob, the younger son, instead of Esau, the older son. Again, another surprise. And the list could go on and on about how God's sovereign election has always surprised people and how it works. God's promise and faithfulness was surprising, but it was good. And you and I can trust that same thing, even when our circumstances seem to shout otherwise today. But this whole idea of God's sovereign choice can leave us wondering a question. Does this mean that God is unjust? If it's all up to God's sovereign choice, then what does that mean for you and for me? How does that work out? Well, Paul asks this question in verse 14 of chapter 9. How can God be just if it's just up to his choice? Again, what Paul does here is he points back to the story of God and his people from the Old Testament. After you go from Abraham and Isaac and you got Jacob, it goes down the line. And what happens is the people of Israel end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. This was something that God had told Abraham was going to come for his descendants. And and after uh, 400 years in slavery, God delivered them out of slavery um, by giving them this leader, Moses, and miraculously bringing them out of their oppression. But what happened pretty quick after that is although God had brought them into this relationship, invited them to be near him, after this had happened, the people quickly turned away from God. 
They chose to take these blessings that God had given to all these people, these gold rings and all this stuff, and they melted it down and they created this golden calf. And they said, behold, this golden calf, the one who rescued us from our slavery in Egypt. And in this moment, God could have rightly wiped the Israelites off the face of the earth because of their rebellion. But what happens is Moses calls out on behalf of the people and he asks God to reveal himself. And so then God reveals himself in Exodus chapter 30. And whenever God reveals himself to the people, he reveals himself as one. And what he highlights is his freedom to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. He points to the fact that his mercy is not dependent on human desire or effort, but it's simply God's freedom to show mercy where he wishes. As he continues to point to the story of God in verses 14 through 29, what Paul highlights is that God's sovereign choice has always been based upon God's mercy and grace, not by merit. One thing that's kind of amazing to look at from Romans chapter 9 through 11 is that a full one or over half of Paul's uses of the word, the verb to show mercy appear in these three chapters. Paul puts a spotlight on God's mercy as something that drives how he decides to operate in his sovereign choice. Here we see that God indeed is just and that we can trust God and we can know that his character and his faithfulness are good. That God will do what he says he was going to do. Again, while he could have rightly wiped the people of Israel off the earth, he chose to show mercy. So we can trust God to keep his promises. Why? Because God is faithful and he never changes. This is what Paul has been pointing to up to this point. He's been following the story of the people of Israel and saying, hey, you can look back and see God's past faithfulness. And that is an indicator to you that God is going to continue to be faithful. But this doesn't answer every question about whether or not we can trust God's word. So what Paul does next is he takes up this question about what is it that brought us to this point? How did we get to the place where uh, so many Israelites had turned away from God and chosen a different way? How is it that they rejected the one that God promised to send? And that's the question he starts to answer if you look at chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. He says, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So how did we get to this place? How did we get to the place where so many of the people of Israel had turned away from God? What Paul does now is he puts a spotlight on human responsibility, on the responsibility that people have for where they find themselves. And so right here, what he says is that the Gentiles were brought in. How? by mercy. It wasn't that they were seeking this out, but whenever they saw this truth about Jesus, they responded in faith and received righteousness. Meanwhile, the Jews, he says, 
they pursued righteousness by the law. They pursued this thing, and what ended up happening is that they they ran after this, and and they hit this stumbling stone, Paul says. This stumbling stone is language from the book of Isaiah that's found throughout the New Testament. You can find it in 1 Peter chapter 2, and what the New Testament authors show us is that, that this stumbling stone that Isaiah was pointing to was Jesus. Jesus was this thing that caused the Israelite people to stumble. They just couldn't understand how or why God would work in this way in and through Jesus. So Jesus was the thing that they stumbled on and Jesus was the one that they ultimately rejected. He was the one that the people of Israel couldn't get over. Now, why is this such a big deal for where they find themselves? Why is it that that this matters so much? Well, Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. You see, it says that the people of Israel pursued righteousness by the law, right? So they were looking at the law. They were pursuing the law as the way to get there. And then in chapter 10, verse 4, here is where Paul just kind of makes it clear. He says, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So here's the the incredible picture that Paul shows here. He shows that, hey, so the people, uh, the Gentiles, they received righteousness because they pursued faith. But these Jewish people, they kept pursuing the law, but they missed the whole point of the law. They kept running after the law, but they missed the fact that Jesus was the one that the law culminated in. Jesus was the one that the law was pointing to. So why do they find themselves where they do? Because although they pursued the law, they missed the purpose of the law. They missed the opportunity to receive that by faith. Meanwhile, the Gentiles saw this, received it by faith. They were welcomed in by grace. This whole idea of by faith kind of ties together where Paul goes next in verses five through 10. Romans 10, five through 10. Moses writes, about, or writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. That's a quote from Leviticus chapter 18, verse five. What Paul's doing at this point is he's pointing back to the fact that God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery. He brought them in by grace. And what he gave them was a conditional promise. And this is that condition there. The person who does these things, these things that God has given them will live by faith. But he goes on to say, or we'll, we'll live by them. But then in verse six, but the righteousness that is by faith says, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is a moment where God puts before the people of Israel the choice of life or the choice of death. And he encourages them to choose life. And here's the, the verses that, that, um, that Paul quotes from there. He says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And then Paul puts a little commentary. He says, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. 
I think this is the point where I'm just supposed to pray and wrap things up. Those last two verses there are pretty popular, pretty powerful, and I will close and wrap things up, just not quite yet. Okay, we still got some work to do here to get through this. But at this point, what we see Paul doing is he points back to what God is doing. This invitation to respond by faith ties back to what God had been doing, even back to the time of Moses. He points back to that verse in Leviticus 18, 5, but he says, hey, that that wasn't the only thing that God put before them. He also put before them this word in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, where he pointed to the fact that they were invited to profess something with their mouth and believe in their heart. Did you catch that in verse, is it verse 8? But what does it say? And this is where he says, he says, the word is near you. This is him quoting from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Right there, God was inviting the people of Israel into this relationship by faith. He says, that is the message concerning the faith we proclaim. So he's saying, hey, if you look all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, when God put it before these people, he was pointing them to this opportunity to profess with their mouth and believe in their heart. The thing that has changed or the thing that has become more clear is what God was pointing to was not just something, but it was someone and it was the person of Jesus. And when Jesus is the object of our faith, we experience new life. We are brought into this relationship with him by faith. You see, God has kept his word. What God is doing now, Paul says, can be tied back to what God was doing with the nation of Israel before. Faith is a confession that Jesus is Lord. Here we begin to understand a little more clearly about what it looks like to walk as the people of God. It's to walk as a people that profess that Jesus is king. A people that say we are living with Jesus as king, which means that there's nothing else defining how we respond to circumstances, how we respond to people, or how we respond to anything else. Because what's most real and most true for us is that Jesus is Lord. You see, this is a powerful idea for that church in Rome, especially because you have to remember that the church in Rome had Nero there who was an emperor. And if they said that Jesus is Lord, that means Nero is not. And for you and I, whenever we profess that Jesus is Lord, it means that we're saying that Jesus, we're giving him all of our allegiance, that we're revoking allegiance to anything else. It means that Jesus is Lord and you are not. Jesus is Lord and your family is not. Jesus is Lord and your job is not. Jesus is Lord and our government is not. If Jesus is Lord, it means that we choose to not look to anything else or anyone else for our sense of security, but we lean on and trust in him alone. And this whole truth drives Paul then in verses 14 to 21 to talk about this mission that he's on now and the mission that the church is on. It's a message to proclaim the good news about Jews and Gentiles both being invited into the people of God and how this ties back to God's promises in and through the prophets. He starts by pointing back to Isaiah chapter 52 through 53, this idea of like beautiful are the feet of the one who carries good news. This ties back to Isaiah 52 and 53. And if you have time this week, just look back on that and how it points to the coming of Jesus. But what Paul is saying here is that this mission that he's on is an urgent mission. 
And the same is true for you and I. The mission that we're on to share this good news is something that brings about a sense of urgency. The need of preaching the gospel for people to come to faith cannot be missed. It was true then and it's true now. This means for any of us in here today that are followers of Jesus, you and I are carriers of God's good news. We are carriers of this message that God has called us to. And this good news isn't just for a certain type of person. It's for all people. This is the way that all are brought into the people of God now. Paul then moves in verses 18 through 21 of chapter 10 to lament that the people of Israel have missed what God is doing. He laments the fact that the people of Israel seem to have gotten so caught up on Jesus and how they they couldn't see this coming true through Jesus. They seem to get so caught up on the Gentiles being welcomed into the people of God by grace. And they see this happening. And while they're so caught and fixed their attention onto that, what they do is they miss that God is standing before them with open arms saying, come in. Paul laments the fact that the people of Israel have rejected this plan that they couldn't figure out. And the whole time, God has been standing there with open arms. and They've rejected it. They've turned away. This reminds me of the passage that Jeremiah pointed us to a couple weeks ago, the story of the two lost sons. Whenever the younger son comes back and, and the father embraces him, and then you have the moment where the older son sees this, And the father stands with the older son with open arms and the older son chooses to turn away. That's what Paul sees happening here now with the people of Israel. As Paul looks at this and he looks at how this has happened, it just causes his heart to break because they've missed the father's open hands. They've missed the fact that God has, in fact, been faithful to his word. God has, in fact, done what he always said he was going to do, and they missed it. See, God has extended mercy and held his arms wide open for the people of Israel, and he's not finished yet. We have to remember again that God is faithful, and he doesn't change. So Paul points us to again here. Now here, I think we see another issue in questioning God's faithfulness to his word. It's that you and I don't see the whole picture. Where we're standing right now, we don't see all that God sees. And a lot of times we'll look at what's happening in life or maybe for those Jewish Christians in, they were reading this letter and hearing this and they weren't seeing this truth that that because God hasn't done what we think he should do yet doesn't mean he's not gonna come through on his promises. See, you and I have limited view to see what God is doing in all of history. And what we have to do is get to a point where we can trust his plan. We can trust his character. After this point, Paul goes on to talk about how God indeed has not maybe finished out what we've seen yet. What he goes on to do in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11 is, is show how God's uh, plan for Israel, how, how what's happened right now in Israel, how there's not, how so many have rejected, not all have responded, that, that that's not total, that it's not a total rejection of Israel. Here's what Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I ask then, Did God reject his people? By no means. Now, how is it that Paul could say that? How is it that Paul could say that God had not rejected his people? Well, just look at the second half of the verse. 
He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. See, Paul himself was a Jew. So when the question comes up, has Paul rejected the Jew? Paul can, can respond from personal experience of experiencing God's new covenant, of being welcomed into this family, of experiencing the good news in and through Jesus and say, God clearly hasn't rejected all of Israel. He clearly hasn't had this total rejection. And what Paul kind of turns his focus to there in the first six verses is this idea of God preserving a remnant a smaller group from the larger group of the people of Israel. This is an idea that's again pointed to throughout the book of Isaiah. I think Isaiah chapter 10 is a a passage where you see this. Paul focuses on this. And then in verses seven through 10, he again points back to Israel's failed attempt to obtain righteousness by works, which resulted in the hardening of their hearts and their eyes being darkened. Paul says this isn't the end of the story. Israel's failure is not final, but it actually leads to Gentiles coming in to faith. Paul says that God's hope here, God's plan with this was to actually provoke jealousy among the people of Israel. Now, why would this be a good thing? Well, because it would lead to the people of Israel seeing the Gentiles experiencing the rich blessing of this relationship with God, this rich blessing of the, that God pours upon his people. And that whenever the Israelites saw this happening for these people that, that came in from outside, that it would draw them to want to experience what God had for them as well. Paul makes this point in verses 11 through 14 before turning to this illustration of this uh, bringing in through using this picture of an olive tree. What he talks about is how, imagine this olive tree and he says there are these foreign branches talking about Gentiles who are grafted into this olive tree. Meanwhile, there are these natural branches that have been broken off that will be re-grafted in. What he's saying is God hasn't given up on the people of Israel yet. God's still standing there with open arms and he will re-graft in some of the people of Israel in the future. This leads to a powerful conclusion in verses 25 through 32, where Paul puts a spotlight on God's incredible new covenant promises. God's new covenant promise ensure that there is still hope for the people of Israel to experience mercy before or at the second coming of Christ. To be honest with you all, I don't know exactly what this looks like or exactly how this works out. I want to just take a second and look at verses 25 through 26. It says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not become or be conceited. Okay, at this point, what Paul is doing, I think, is he's talking to the Gentile Christians who may be tempted to become conceited because after all Paul's written here, they're the ones that responded in faith, right? And Paul says, hey, don't become so puffed up that you make the same mistake that the people of Israel had before. He goes on to say this, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles have come, or has come in. Now, again, I don't know exactly what Paul means by the full number of Gentiles being brought in. But what I believe that Paul is doing is he's pointing to, again, God's mercy and God's grace towards people of bringing in a large number of people here. And what Paul says after this is, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
Now, that statement has caused a lot of conversation, so I'm just going to give you my two cents on it. I think we need to understand this idea of all Israel being saved in light of what Paul has said earlier in Romans 9 through 11, starting in verse 6 of chapter 9, where he said, not all descendants of Israel are Israel. Not all ethnic Israel are experiencing the promise of God. But those that are, are those who have responded by faith. So I think what Paul is pointing to is that there will be a moment where there will be many from the um, Jewish nation that see the Gentiles being brought in and they respond to Jesus in faith and thus are brought in as these natural branches that were broken off are regrafted in here. I don't know exactly what this means or exactly what this looks like, but it's another reminder that God stands there before the nation of Israel with open arms. God stands there before you and I with open arms. The message of Romans 9 through 11 is that God has been faithful because God's plan all along was to bless all nations in and through the family of Abraham to bring them into one family, which is God, what God has done in Christ. So what Paul is doing here is saying his arms are still open, respond in faith. What this does is it causes Paul to worship. Look again at verses 33 through 36. I don't think he really tied a tight bow before this point. I don't know that this ties a tight bow on this argument, but I think, again, it draws us to a place of realizing that we should be in awe of who God is. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The truth of Romans 9 through 11 should draw us to worship. But maybe what should that worship do for us as we leave here today? I think there are three things that we can maybe leave with today. One is I think we can be grateful that God plays the long game. We can look at the story of Israel and see that God was weaving things together, that God played the long game with his people. And the same is true for you and I. God plays the long game with us. I think we can hold to to the promise that, that we see in the book of Philippians whenever Paul says that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That's true for us. It's also true for God's bigger plan as well. God plays the long game. I think the second thing we can do is that we can be hopeful. We can be prayerful. We can be evangelistic in every direction. See, if you look at this passage, one of the incredible things you see is, is Paul's hope that those who have rejected Jesus as Messiah would at some point respond in faith. Paul had hope, and I think you and I can have that same hope. Again, if some of the hurt you have is that there's someone you love that's turned from Jesus, I want to encourage you just with Paul's words, whether you look at 1 through 5 or or 10, 1, I think there's hope that God stands with open arms, that all who respond in faith will be welcomed in, and there's no one beyond his reach. I think we can also be prayerful. That's something we see Paul model for us here in chapter uh, 
10, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and then again in 10.1, he just pleads that the people of Israel would respond in faith. And finally, we can be evangelistic in every direction, which means that we see those around us and we recognize that, that no one is beyond the reach of our God, and we carry news that is really good news for the world around us. We can share the good news and trust that God will work in and through that and that this is good news for all in our lives, not just a select few. And the third thing I think we can do is I think we can be amazed at our God. We can be amazed at who he is and how he's worked throughout history. We can be amazed by him and grow in our faith in his promises by reminding ourselves of God's promises again and again until they move from our head down into our heart. We can be amazed by God as we look at God's promises and make the choice to take a step of faith towards him whenever we don't have control, trusting that he is going to come through on his promise. We can take bold steps of faith and obedience to our God, trusting that if we're off track, he's going to bring us back in line with what he is trying to do. Our amazement of God should drive us to exercising faith in the promises of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for being an incredibly good God. I thank you for your incredible word. God, for the way that you've been faithful throughout history and the way that you are faithful here today. God, I pray that you will. God, allow this truth just to sink into our hearts, transform the way that we live, transform the way that that we interact with those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.